The time is now. All week long, you have a chance to show the love of God to others, but have you ever thought about the fact that we are always living in the present? We can remember the past, we can see the future, but our opportunities always come now. And right now, there are gathered your brothers and sisters in Christ, that if you were to try to see each one of them during the week, it would take you, I'm not sure how long it would take you, to actually get the conversations, get the FaceTime with them that you're getting right now. So I hope you'll take advantage of the chance you have to show love uh, to one another. And it really was underscored for me this morning because I love making the rounds before and after church and meeting people, uh, looking especially for those that are are visiting for the first time and, and that kind of thing. And I saw a number of folk here that I didn't recognize, um, even close to me. And but I've you can tell I'm a little croaky this morning. Um, and was trying to reduce the amount of talking I did. But there's a huge difference between what Sunday feels like when I can have time with people, talking with them, and when I have to kind of stay aloof. It's not cool. Um, so first, my apologies to those that I basically ignored this morning. Um, but then also my appeal, if, if maybe it hasn't been your practice to try to greet people and talk with them, um, don't throw away the now time to do that. And I think your Sunday will, Lord's Day, will feel very different from just the day where, well, I could have watched this online. Um, if I were just going to stay to myself. So I encourage you to reach out to one another. You know, we never, we never know when our opportunities are going to be gone. We have a window of time. And as we're studying in John 13, and we reach the end of that chapter, Judas, the traitor, has just left the upper room and gone out into the night. In a few short hours, the disciples will enter the worst trial they've ever lived. They'll be overwhelmed with fear and grief, a, a drastic change from what they've experienced for the last three and a half years walking with Jesus. All will seem to be lost. But Christ's words in verses 31 to 38 of John 13 reveal to us what's really going on and instruct the disciples on how to navigate it. It's almost like you know how last words on somebody's deathbed are so significant. Here we have the last words in this uh, section of John as Christ instructed his disciples before he was arrested. So we begin in verse 31 of John 13. When he, that is Judas, had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I'm going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me afterward. 
Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. In verses 31 to 32, and I've underlined the words, you see glorified or glorify five times. In verses 33 to 35, you see the word love four times. And then in verses 36 to 38, you see the word follow three times. And so I'm hanging our outline on those emphases, those repeated words. In verses 31 to 32, divine glory in the cross. In verses 33 to 35, mutual love like Christ's love. And then finally, 36 to 38, following but faltering loyalty. I believe these verses fall naturally into these themes. So consider with me first divine glory in the cross. When he had gone out, Judas, I mean Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. The term glory is a, you know, pretty much a Christian term, a religious term, so it's important for us to remember its significance. In the Old Testament, when we talk about the glory of God, we talk about the, the weightiness or the importance of God. In the New Testament, the word that's used refers to shining splendor or majesty. So to glorify God is not to make him more glorious than he is, but to respond to him in a way that displays or reflects how glorious he is. I can't make God shine out more. I can't make God more weighty than he is, but I can treat God in the way that he actually is. I can shine out his attributes. I can give praise and honor to him for his attributes of shining splendor. Now, Judas has gone out to betray the Lord Jesus, and soon the traitor will show up in the Garden of Gethsemane with a band of soldiers and chief priests to arrest Jesus, haul him off to an illegal light nighttime trial, and through a series of efforts, see to it that he is crucified the next day. His followers will flee in terror and later hide themselves away for fear of arrest and execution themselves. Worse, their expectation of Christ the Messiah launching his messianic kingdom will be dashed to pieces and they will be beside themselves as to what to do. You can, you can imagine how their world just seems to explode on this night. And then when Christ is crucified the next day, how just everything would seem lost. So it's nothing short of stunning that Jesus would describe this gross miscarriage of justice, this deadly victory of his enemies, as bringing glory to God or bringing glory to himself. How is that even possible? Yet Jesus consistently refers to his suffering and death this way. Now is the Son of Man glorified. Later this very evening, he will pray this way in John 17, 4 to 5. I have glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you 
before the world existed. Jesus brings glory to God by accomplishing his mission and then returning to his place alongside God the Father. His mission was to make atonement for sin, the, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. No sinner could be reconciled to a holy God without the sacrifice of an innocent life for a guilty life. The, the whole sacrificial system was designed to display that. But it's obvious that, that animals dying can't possibly purchase uh, my own freedom from sin and from the guilt of sin. Somehow that had to point to something more. And here the God-man is going to lay down his life, be delivered up as a completely innocent person, delivered up, as Peter put it on the day of Pentecost, according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. And though he was going to be crucified by wicked men. Earlier in John 12, Jesus had predicted in verses 23 and 24, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. So you see, he's linking his death to the fruitfulness of his sacrifice. So this gives us further insight in how this horrible series of events could possibly glorify God the Father and glorify God the Son. The death of Christ was necessary to the fruitfulness that he would produce. There's another clue in the language that he uses. He uses this term, son of man. He uses it in John 12. He uses it here in John 13. And it, it harks back to Daniel 7, the human, the son of man who comes from heaven with the Ancient of Days, at the end of the age, to judge all the nations, all the kingdoms of the world in righteousness. He rules an everlasting kingdom of the saints, all those that belong to God. So that's the picture in Daniel, but he is called Son of Man. Now we expect God, or we expect angels to be coming down from heaven, but why this man, this descendant of a human, coming down from heaven? Well, it's because the incarnation of God the Son and his subsequent sacrifice for our sin is inseparable from his role as the final judge in the everlasting kingdom. There can be no crown without the cross, and the cross demanded that there be a human, the God-man, that would make a sacrifice for our sins. Paul says as much in the book of Philippians, and we're familiar with this. We read it even last week. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He didn't stay holding on to it, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself to become obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, Yahweh saves, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I think that passage probably sums up, as well as any passage, the link between the suffering of Christ 
and the glory of Christ, the shining splendor of God. God is glorified in the cross-bearing of Jesus Christ for a number of reasons. First, it, it displays his power to save sinners. I mean, how is it possible that God could justify the ungodly? How can he be just? How can he be righteous? And then say that unrighteous people are righteous. There has to be some kind of substitute. And as Romans explains, this is the way he shows his power to save even sinners. It also shows his justice by judging sin. When Jesus took sin on himself, God's wrath was poured out on him just as it would have been on us. It shows his holiness by his requiring purification from sin to come to him. It's always been that way. But for people to come to him not just in a worship service, but to come to him eternally to be part of his kingdom, something had to radically happen, and the cross was necessary to that. It shows his faithfulness to his promises to send a Savior, promises he had been making ever since the Garden of Eden. And it shows his love that he would do this at such great cost. I mean, God is glorified in lots of ways. The heavens declare the glory of God. Why? They, they show his creative genius. They show his sustaining care. But here, his, his glory shines out in a different way because we see how much he really is a God of self-sacrificing love. Christ goes on to say that, that God the Father will glorify him, God the Son, and he will glorify him at once as he dies. And then three days later, um, is raised from the tomb and then ascends to the Father some days after that, uh, Jesus Christ demonstrates that he is king even over death, that he is more powerful than anything that could imprison human beings. Now, to glorify God, we have to acknowledge who God actually is. You know, a lot of times you hear people talk about, well, I like to think about God this way, or I like to think about God th that way. Well, who cares? If we're writing fiction, I guess it, it doesn't matter, but if, if we really want to know who God is, you know, how would you like it if somebody talked about you that way? Well, I like to think about John in this way, or I like to think about Susie in this way, or I like to think about, you know, it just is, it doesn't make sense. Who is the person? Okay, we want to know the person for who he actually is. Well, people often think of God as they imagine him to be. Sometimes he's a, a weak a grandfatherly yes-man, kind of in his dotage years. Or sometimes they view him as a cosmic bully, a petulant tyrant. Sometimes they view him as nothing at all but the creation of needy human beings. Well, Jesus shone out the splendor of who God is and what he's really like. He was the greatest person who ever walked the planet, but gentle and full of humility even to the point of death. He was full of deep insight into the hearts of human beings and full of compassion for the broken. That's what God is like. He saw straight through hypocrisy and pride. That's what God is like. He demonstrated that wickedness will be judged. There is no good old boy club where God looks the other way. He rescues people from impossible defects, illnesses, and death itself. Jesus did that walking on earth. He showed us what can be done and what God's will is to do. 
He showed God to be both willing and able to make good on his promises that one day these things that rip apart our lives will be utterly eradicated from our experience in the new heavens and the new earth where perfect righteousness will take up residence. That's not just a fantasy. That's not just a pipe dream. Jesus demonstrated in his ministry on earth that these things can happen and will happen through his power. So you glorify God when you worship him for who God actually is. You, you glorify Jesus when you treat him as he actually is and trust him for what he has truly accomplished. Jesus glorified the Father, the Father glorified Jesus the Son, and the Holy Spirit will do the same thing when he comes and is given to his people. The brutal execution of Jesus was necessary to rescuing people from their sin and keeping with his name. It was necessary to reconciling them to their creator and to their king. So call him Jesus. You recall that's his name. Call him Jesus. Why? The name means Yahweh saves, for he, Jesus, will save his people from their sin. So as we think about this, since Jesus and God his Father are glorified in the cross, what about versions of Christianity that ignore the cross and its significance? You know, what if we just portray Jesus as a mighty prophet? Or what if we portray Jesus just as a guy who gets us? And that's all, rather than the one who saves us. There are all kinds of versions of Christianity that kind of use Christ's name for leverage, for marketing, but, but aren't really who he is. And what does the determination of Jesus to go to the cross to glorify God tell you about how committed God is to saving sinners like us? I mean, think about this. This glorifies God. But it, it wouldn't have even been necessary at all if, if sinners didn't need to be saved this way. God's commitment to saving us and, and that display of his love and that kind of arena, he's so committed to it that he will die for it. And he's dying for people that don't deserve it. Not one of them. He's dying for them because of his great love. And if the self-sacrifice of Jesus brought glory to God, what are some ways that you can glorify God by following the example of Jesus? And this is going to develop more in the next point. But, but if we're not living a self-sacrificing kind of life, we're really not displaying the gospel of Jesus. If it's all about us, if it's all self-centered, um, if it's all about looking good, if it's all about um, pretending to be better than other people, that's not Christianity. That, that, that's just not it. Christianity should look like Christ. It should display his character. 
And so this is so critical. The glory of God is bound up in the cross. So second, we see mutual love like Christ's love. He says, little children, verse 33, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. Now, now think about what he just said there, because the ones he said, when he said to the Jews, you can't come, these are his enemies. Now he's talking to his friends. And so they're like, whoa, wait a minute. Why? You know, this is, I think, part of the reason that Peter has his response. But he says, verse 34, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. We'll stop there. The term little children, it's a term of endearment. It actually shows up primarily in John's first letter, the epistle of 1 John. It, it, it's like the affection of loving parents toward a little son or daughter. And the apostle John uses it extensively in 1 John to point to the family relationship that God's children have with them. They bear his character in their spiritual DNA. Jesus demonstrated his true character in his self-sacrificing love for his people. And those who are his children will do the same. Their, theirs is a life of loving self-sacrifice, and their journey of life is a crossroad, just as was his. Anything else distorts the image of who Jesus is. The disciples couldn't follow Jesus through the gates of death into heaven just yet. But they could display his love on earth till the day came for them to follow him home. Now, to love others is not a new commandment. That's a very old one. We go back to Deuteronomy 6. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Leviticus 19. Love your neighbor as yourself. And so Jesus puts those two together in Matthew 22 and says... Here is the greatest command, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second like to it, love your neighbors yourself. All the law and the prophets are summed up in these two great commands. In other words, all the things that God says do and all the things that God says don't are really an outflow of whether or not you love people or whether you love God. If you love people, you don't do them wrong. You don't do them harm. You do them good. So in what ways then... Is this a new commandment? Well, it's a new commandment in this way. We are to love one another as he loved us. That is, in his sacrificial death for us. Think about it now. You know, Jesus is not our equal. He pitched his tent alongside us. He's not our equal. And yet he stooped, he humbled himself to die in our place to rescue us. That's the kind of love that he wants us to display toward one another. In John 10, 11, he says, I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Think about Jesus as your good shepherd. He, he loves you with that kind of love. He's good. He, he lays down his life for his sheep, not because they're good, but because he's good. And then John 15, 3, greater love has no one than this, than that someone lay down his life for his friends. So he's, he's giving this axiom, this broader statement on the basis of what he's about to do. 
And so John later will write, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. So John clearly got the message of what Christ taught them this night. In John 13, 35, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. A disciple is another one of those religious terms. Or what does it mean? It means a, a learner or a follower. He learns from the master in order to teach others, and he imitates the master so that he can live like the master lives. So disciples that are actually learning from Jesus and teaching others and are copying Jesus in their lifestyle, this is the way they live. Love one another. And the focus here is on the love that true Christians have for one another. Now, you know, we should love all people because they're made in God's image. But there's this special family love that exists between those that, that belong to Jesus. We love one another. How you treat your brothers and sisters in Christ reveals whether you're actually a disciple of Jesus and a child of God. So he's got this framed out. You know, first he calls them little children, and then he calls them disciples. So we, we show God's DNA is in us by loving one another, and we show that we've learned from Jesus, and we're copying him when we love one another. John says it this way in 1 John 4, Beloved, notice, he's, he's an expression of love toward those he writes, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. And this, by the way, let me just stop right there. It, it could be hard for us in a sin-cursed earth where there's plagues and disasters and cruelty and, and sickness and death. It could be hard for us to believe that God was more than just a powerful God, but for the cross. Now, God cares. We see his care. Actually, there's a lot of his expression of his love in creation and his sustaining us and his provision. But there's enough that undermines that that we could question the love of God. But when you go to the cross, there's no question. The cross makes it abundantly clear how much God wants to restore us. Anyone that does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. Notice how John ties the love of God and our loving others to the cross of Christ, to his coming into the world to die for us, that we might live through him. How often those who profess themselves to be Christians boldly violate this hallmark of truly born-again believers. Years ago, I came across a, a, a phrase by G. Campbell Morgan, referred to those who fight the battles of heaven with the spirit of hell. And I've quoted this one to you before in J.C. Ryle's commentary on John. It's so beautifully written, I'm going to read it to you again. How far from satisfactory is the state of those who are content with sound doctrinal opinions and orthodox correct views of the gospel, while in their daily life they give way to ill temper, ill nature, malice, envy, quarreling, squabbling, bickering, surliness, passion, snappish language, 
and crossness of word and manner. Such persons, whether they know it or not, are daily proclaiming that they are not Christ's disciples. It is nonsense to talk about justification and regeneration and election and conversion and the usefulness of, uselessness of works unless people can see in us practical Christian love. See, it's just so easy to, to wear the mask, right? Be part of an organization that's Christian. Be part of a church that's Christian. To even have a job that's related to ministry, to to know the verses, to do the things, you know, to stand up when you're supposed to stand up, sit down when you're supposed to sit down, you know, sing the hymn when we turn to, okay, you can do all that and be completely lost. But to live a life of practical love toward people, self-sacrificing love toward people, that's genuine Christianity, and that shows up. That's the acid test. Because maybe the reason that I do religious things and do right things is because I'm pastor at Hampton Park Baptist Church, and if I don't do those things, I'll lose my job. Or maybe it's because I live in a culture where that's rewarded. Or maybe it's because I feel like that's more respectable. It's about being respectable. Or maybe it's because I don't like the pain that sinful practices bring. Or maybe it's that I'm really gifted intellectually and I can, I can really finally define what truth is. The question is, what is your heart? What do you like toward other people? What do you do in the face of need? How do you treat others? And, you know, if you think about what Christ is saying here, there's such an opportunity for us to display the gospel. This is why, you know, we say that our job, our mission is to proclaim and to display the gospel. So it comes out in all kinds of ways, and and there are times that all of us can violate these things. Like, how do you treat other Christians on social media, especially in an election year? I mean... How many other believers are you going to throw under the bus so that you seem like you're sophisticated? That's not Christian. I'm not talking about legitimate confrontation, legitimate debate, whatever. I'm talking about, I'm talking about treating other people with spite and acting like their motives are evil while yours are pure as a driven snow. And you say you're a Christian, but you're glad to throw other Christians, as Christians, under the bus. That's evil. When you see faults and failings or sins of Christian brother or sister, do you take the trouble to try to restore that person in the spirit of meekness, knowing that you yourself can be tempted, Galatians 6? Or do you just look the other way and say, well, or, or do you say nothing to the person, but say plenty to people about the person? You know what? That's the original context of loving your neighbor as yourself. Leviticus 19, you shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. 
You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. It takes guts to, to reason frankly with your neighbor when you feel like he's done you wrong. It takes, it, it takes courage. It takes self-control. It takes love. You know, why bother? If you don't love the person, why bother? Let, let him destroy his, let him self-destruct. And so these things come down to really, really practical things and just where our heart is and how we respond to the things that happen. So what are some practical ways that you can show self-sacrificing love to your brothers and sisters in Christ on a regular basis? I mean, what? Let's go back to the social media thing. And I, you know what? I, I want you to know, it I bugs me when preachers get up and are always, you know, dumping on social media as the evil. Well, it's, you know, humans are evil. We're sinners by birth and by choice. It's going to come out when we talk, okay? And what, however we talk. But what if you were to take your Christianity to social media? I know there, there are some folks in our congregation that there's so much positive good that they convey and they communicate using social media as the bridge. What, what would happen if that were the norm in terms of displaying the gospel? And, of course, most of this comes down to just not people that we don't even know face-to-face, but comes down to our actual interactions. So what are some ways you can do that? And what are some ways you violated Christ's command to love one another as he loved us? And how can you start to make things right? Because the fact is, all of us do. Sometimes we don't realize we've done it. But, but we need to make those things right. Go back to the person and apologize. Go back to the person and not just apologize, but, but do something on the, the good side of the bad that you've done. And then when have you seen the display of this kind of love draw others to Christ? Because th- this is powerful when people get to see it for real. Well, let's go. We really have to go to this point three because um, at this point we're all feeling, should be feeling pretty guilty um, about how, how badly we maybe carry this out. So what are we going to do with that? Following but faltering loyalty. Verse 36, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. These verses call us to humble awareness of our inherent weakness as human beings. Now, Peter sincerely and intensely desired to follow Jesus, even to prison and to death if need be. In the accounts in Matthew 26 and Mark 14, Peter declared that even if all the other disciples forsook Jesus, that Peter would never do so. And in fact, they all joined with Peter, all the disciples, and said they would be willing to die for Jesus. But their flesh was weaker than they imagined. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Peter, James, and John fell asleep while Jesus agonized in prayer. And when Jesus was arrested, all the disciples fled. 
Peter and John followed at a distance, but Peter ended up denying the Lord three times, and people near the trial thought they recognized him as a Jesus follower. Jesus reveals this here because Jesus knew all along what Peter would face and how he would fail. He has always known just as much about you. Peter abandoned Jesus for a time, but Jesus never abandoned Peter. According to Luke's account, when Jesus predicted Peter's denial, he assured Peter of his care for him. He says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. In other words, prove that you're just a hypocrite. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when, not if, when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. So even the strongest of Jesus' disciples is still in need of grace and rescue. I have prayed for you that your faith fail not. Peter and the rest of the disciples are also still in need of training. The only way to learn from Jesus is to stay close to him. And they all fled, but, but they all came back to Jesus after the resurrection. Or perhaps it's better to say that he came back to them. He taught them for some 40 days before he ascended to heaven. Peter went back fishing, but Jesus wanted him to fish for men. And so we see in John 21, we're going to see Jesus restore Peter to usefulness with those haunting questions three times. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And the command, feed my sheep. And they were all, all these disciples were clearly in need of the Holy Spirit's power. I mean, look at the difference from Pentecost onward in these men. According to church history, Peter did eventually follow the Lord, even unto death. He was crucified upside down. And Jesus refers to his eventual martyrdom in John 21, 18. He says, when you're old, you'll stretch out your hands, another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. If the apostles, whom Jesus had trained, if the apostles faltered in this way, and most of them were eventually martyred for Christ, who are we to think that we will never falter? They were not hypocrites and fakes. They were sincere. They were following, but faltering. And so it is with every one of us who desire to follow Jesus faithfully. We follow, but we also falter. It is his grace that keeps us. It is his ongoing training that strengthens us. It's his spirit that enables us to live for him at all. Taking the crossroad is a difficult journey full of self-denials and failures, but full of his blessing and shepherding care. His goodness and steadfast love will pursue us all the days of our lives, and we shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Remember what the Lord taught Paul when Paul asked to be relieved of his thorn in the flesh? He said no, that Paul would have to continue to bear it. And he said this, he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, 
I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So what have you seen happen in your own life when you are overconfident about your ability to follow Jesus faithfully? According to Hebrews, Jesus continues to intercede for his own just as he did for Peter. And so how does it help you in your struggles to know Jesus is praying specifically for you? And what failures have you experienced that have made you reluctant to come back to Jesus for restoration? I mean, sometimes we fail in ways where we're totally ashamed, where we feel like the Lord won't take us back. But the last thing we should do is stay away. We need to come back to him. We need to be restored by him. And how can knowing that his grace is sufficient for our weakness give you hope for yourself and also hope for your faltering brothers and sisters in Christ? Don't give up on yourself. Don't give up on them. Because if they belong to Christ, he can make them stand. And if they belong to Christ, you can show them his love. Divine glory in the cross, mutual love like Christ's love, following but faltering loyalty. The road of glory is a road of self-sacrificial love. I was reminded of Peter's words in 1 Peter 4. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you also may be glad when his glory is revealed. As we go, we travel alongside brothers and sisters on whom to pour out our love, and they on us. We all stumble along the way, but we will follow Jesus all the way home. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and the convicting power of it, the enlightening power of it, the encouraging power of it. And Lord, I pray that you would help us not shrink from the crossroad. It is our nature to want to avoid pain and humiliation. And yet you have shown us that it is the path of glory. And it is the expression of love. So God, may we walk that road joyfully. For the joy that's set before us. For the fruitfulness of it. May we walk it to share in the fellowship of your sufferings. May we walk it to show love to those around us. A love that looks like the love of Jesus. And Lord, I pray you would help us when we falter. Help us, Lord, back up. Give us brothers and sisters that will restore us. Help us restore them. And Lord, ultimately, we pray that you would restore us by your spirit, through your intercession, because of your promise that we might make it safely home. You are a good shepherd, and we know it well.
It's in Christ's name we pray these things. Amen.